Our text comes this morning from Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 through 5. John the Apostle has been described as the Lord Jesus Christ has been revealing to him so that he could pass on to us his plan for the future. This revelation occurred in 95-96 A.D. And yet, it's relevant to our day because he was telling the things that must come to pass and much of what we have seen uh, has yet to be initiated, though the stage has been prepared and uh, waiting for God's signal to raise the curtain with the rapture of the church. And so John has been recording that and passing that down to us in what we have identified as the book of Revelation. Beginning at verse 1 of this last chapter of the book, John says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This chapter exposes to us the beautiful things that we can anticipate in the new heaven and the new earth that we explored briefly in our study last time. What was lost in the book of Genesis now becomes fulfilled and regained at the end of time. We've given just a brief overview, enough to whet our appetites, enough to provide for us a sense of security and comfort, and hopefully perhaps even anticipation of that which is to come. Follow with me then as we read through this 22nd chapter of Revelation and seek to understand that which He has revealed for our anticipation. In verse 1, John says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, that was proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. 
a pure river of water of life that's said to be flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And as we see this text, we recognize that it speaks about the fullness of refreshment. It speaks about the fullness of life and the fullness of joy. The psalmist in Psalm 36 indicates that and elaborates for us on that as well. There are both heavenly and earthly streams of blessing that are indicated in the Word of God. The earthly kind are identified for us in Ezekiel chapter 47 verse 1 and in the book of Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8. And then the heavenly passage is the one that we have here in Revelation chapter 22. A brief scene of a crystal clear river called the water of life that's flowing out of the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. They are one, the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. John goes on then to say, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life. We were introduced to the tree of life back early on in the book of Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth and when He prepared it for man and placed man upon it, He planted a garden in Eden and two specific trees were identified in the planting of that garden. All matter of fruits, but two specific trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so man with his free will was given an option at that particular point. He could eat of the tree of life and that which God provided, or he could go out on his own by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and make his own judgment and set his own course instead of following in submission to that which the Creator had provided for them. Here it is said that in paradise regained, there is going to be the tree of life. And it's a little difficult to picture exactly how that's going to uh, be structured. We're told that the river of, of the water of life comes out of the throne and then uh, uh, in the midst of the street and then on each side of the river is the tree of life. Word tree is singular. And so, is he talking about the uh, a, num- a row of trees on each side of uh, the river, uh, of the water of life? Or is he talking about a single tree that straddles the river? Well, I've decided that when the Lord gives enough time and we conclude this series, we might just take a look at the tree of life. 
there's very little that is given to us in in the scripture uh certainly of the genesis account then there's a passage in proverbs and then there's a couple of other allusions to it uh in the old testament but here we have then a little more description than we've had in the past but just enough more description that might call calls us to have more questions than we had before and perhaps a need to investigate it. It's said here that the tree of life stood on either side of the river and that it bare twelve manner of fruits and it yielded her fruit every month and leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That does then raise some questions. Why is there need for healing of the nations if there is going to be perfect uh, perfection and sinlessness uh, and no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more illness? Why is there need for the leaves to be for the healing of the nations? Well, Stay tuned. We'll eventually get to that. It may be when the Lord is giving us the guided tour, but uh, we'll attempt to do something about that before then. There's another thing that raises questions among the Bible student, and that is uh, the leaves not only are said to be giving healing to the nations, but it is, we are told there are twelve manner of fruits and each one bears its fruit in its season and, uh, uh, every month. Well, we are told in the Genesis account of creation that the moon and the sun and the stars were placed in the heavens to be for signs and for seasons. Our month in the world in which we live is based on the sun and its cycles. Uh, in the Old Testament, in, among the Hebrews then, we find that the months are determined by the moon. And yet there's not going to be any sun and there's not going to be any moon in this new heaven and new earth that we have described here. So we'll come back and look at this one day, Lord willing, and uh, see if we can get some answers to it. For now, the writer and the revealer of that writing seems to just simply whet our appetite with the provisions that God's going to make for us, whatever they may be in that situation. He continues in verse 3 then by saying, and there shall be no more curse. The difference in the earth before the curse that resulted from the fall of man by the sin of Adam and Eve and the world that we live in is quite different. The curse affects every area of life. 
nature itself is under the curse because of the sin of man. The animals are under the curse because of the sin of man. But there's coming a time then when that curse will be removed and there will never again be a curse throughout all of eternity. We are told then, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. There can certainly be no curse where the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb are established. There it's irreconcilable to speak about a curse and to identify then the ruling and reigning of God Himself. The text continues, and the servants, His servants, God's servants, shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. God's servants are going to see Him. There's going to, and to serve Him, there's going to be some activity that we are going to be involved in in the new heaven and the new earth, in life as it goes on, but in a different form and in a different structure. And yet there is the identification of the children of God and the sons of God serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And uh, uh, it would be beneficial to us to explore that further, but the primary focus of Scripture right now is upon the reality of that, but until that comes, we have a work of service to do here. The Bible in the Old Testament identified that no man had seen the face of God nor could look upon the face of God, but that's going to be changed when our nature is changed and when the regeneration takes effect in our entire being, so that not only are we saved by the grace of God, but we are made holy and without blame experientially in the daily practice of our lives. And then we will be able to look upon the face of God. And then John is told, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Well, you may have some understanding that I like to take a little interest in the specific words and the word choice that's used in the Scripture because of the graphicness of the language and in an attempt to better understand what's going on. As I read this, uh, and it says that His name shall be in their foreheads, uh, uh, I immediately uh, refer to the preposition in uh, in the Greek, uh, the preposition in, which talks about inside their foreheads. But that's not a good choice of translation here because the Greek preposition is not in. The Greek preposition is epi, and it's on, that his name will be on their foreheads. So some way or other there is a visible identification that relates us uh, to the name of God Himself as we move into the span of eternity. The name of God is on 
the forehead of all of the servants of God that are gathered together there. And there is going to be then a complete conformity to His purpose, to His plan, which includes our joy and our uh, fullness according to His very act of creation. In verse 5, He continues, And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. It is interesting to see even in the creation account that the Scripture says, And God said, Let there be light. And then He created the sun and the moon and the stars to govern the light of day and the light of night. But we did not need that in the beginning and certainly in the eternal span that is ahead of us. There is said to be no night, but rather there will not be any need for the sun or the moon, but God Himself will provide the light that is needed. And then... uh, He said, they shall reign forever and ever. Of course, Satan will not in this lifetime cease to reign, but there is coming a time when he no longer has a rule or a province or an area in which he can rule over. He rules much of the earth today because man sold out to him and bought his plan instead of God's plan in the Garden of Eden by eating of the forbidden fruit and seeking to acquire his own exercise of right and wrong. And the world became the dominion of Satan so that he is identified as the prince of the power of the air. And that's going to become a greater reality as time moves on and uh, we come to these final days before the rapture of the church and then the the thrust of the Holy Spirit through the church uh, believers will be removed and the, He will have a greater reign uh, to rule and to control. But that will all come to a climax and We saw in our study last time that he will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and there he will be forever. And so it will now be the saints of God that will rule and reign with him forever. In verse 6, John says, And he said unto me, speaking of the angel, He said unto me, These things are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets, sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. The true and faithful are the sayings of God. And uh, certainly uh, we find that identified uh, in our own experience through time. We have seen how uh, the world would contradict uh, what the Word of God said, eventually though, as uh, they they explored things, 
they would have to modify their position to identify that which God said was true. They used to say the world was flat. And the Bible said the world was a sphere. And they finally had to reconcile their view with the biblical view and accept that. And uh, there are events of science and statistics uh, that uh, are exciting to study to see the tremendous uh, change that man has made, uh, has been forced to make and to agree upon with the things that the Word of God has declared. The angel then speaks to John, and he said unto me, These things are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets has sent his angel to show his servants the things must, which must shortly be done. We have the, the inspiration that there is coming a day when we will better understand all the things that we have misunderstood, uh, been baffled by, been confused by in this lifetime as these things are revealed to us in eternity. And then we have the statement, Behold, I come quickly. It is at this point that there will no longer be any delay. But the Lord is going to exercise all of the things of prophecy that have been revealed and we will experience the fullness of that. Now, when you read this in 95-96 AD, Behold, I come quickly. Certainly, they could not imagine 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years passing before that becomes uh, a reality. But we need to understand the statement, Behold, I come quickly, is tied directly into the announcements that are being made in heaven. It's His quickness of coming is immediately following the events that we have studied up to this point. We know there's at least seven years of tribulation. We know there's at least a thousand years of a millennial reign. So His quickness in coming is when these things are climaxed, He will make that appearance. And the rapture of the church then will immediately be followed in heaven by the judgment seat and the marriage of the Lamb to the church while on earth there is great tribulation that breaks out here. Natural calamity and uh, uh, only things that God Himself could visit upon our civilization to awaken them to the reality that He is God. And there is no other name given among men whereby men might be saved except the name of Jesus. The angel then says to John, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. His promise to the one who reads it, to the one who hears it, and to the one that does the things that are instructed here.
He continues with that, and John says, And I, John, saw these things, and I heard them. And when I had heard and seen, John said, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of the book. Worship God. John got caught up in the moment. The Bible was one that John was familiar with that forbade our worship of any other than God Himself. But John is caught up in the excitement and in the uh, awesomeness of this revelation that he falls down before the feet of the angel to worship Him. And the angel stops him from that. He said, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of the book, worship God. God must be the only focus of our worship and our relationship as it relates to eternal life. In verse 10, John continues, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for time is at hand. So in 95-96 AD, as John receives this revelation, he is told not to seal these things up any longer. The prophets had spoken through a veil. Daniel had given us information, but it was told to hold some of that information back that he could not reveal to us because the time was not right. But now in this, the church age that is beginning, uh, it be, actually began in 30 AD, and we're looking at 95, 96 AD at the writing of this, These are the last days. These uh, prophecies that began to be identified in Revelation chapter 2 and on through the book then gives us a chronology of events, a calendar of activities. uh, And so there is the excitement of no longer having that veil and no longer sealing these things uh, for time now is at hand And John reveals these things to us as they were revealed to him. In verse 11, John writes, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now some have misinterpreted this and uh, in their foolishness to understand this, they see it as an invitation to continue to pursue that which is unjust or that which is filthy. No, There's coming a time when there cannot be a change for the unjust. 
when there will no longer be available a change for the filthy. At this mark in the account of the revelation that God is giving, that has been cut off. We have had the resurrection. We have had the judgment seat of Christ for the believer. We've had the on uh, the church age. We've had the judgment of the nations uh, at the second advent. We've had the great white throne judgment. And those things are sealed now for eternity. And so the unjust will remain unjust. The filthy will remain filthy. And praise God, the righteous will remain righteous. The holy will remain holy. This is the point at which those things are sealed. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. My reward is with me. For the saints, those rewards then come at the judgment seat of Christ. For the church age saints, those rewards are given at the judgment seat of Christ. At the second advent, where we have the resurrection then of the believers from the time of Adam until that time, there will be then the giving of reward and the appointing of places of position of leadership uh, in the millennial age. At the end of the millennium, the great white throne then is the final judgment as we see the rewards having been dispensed and the punishment now taking place. We serve a triune God identified to us and revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I find it interesting that the eternal character of God is reflected in this statement in verse 13 then of this 22nd chapter. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Three different phrases that identify the same attribute of holiness. The Alpha and Omega is the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Became an idiom to identify the sum total of all. The beginning and the end is specific to us. And the first and the last are further identification of that which is going to occur and that which is going to take place. The threefold declaration of the eternality of a timeless and eternal God. And then in verse 14, John writes, Blessed are they that do His commandments. Well, John didn't write that, but that's what's written here. Let's look at it for a minute. Blessed are they which do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. This is a poor translation of the Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you follow this, 
and and you accept this as uh, being the divinely revealed text, uh, then you're going to have a system, a program of salvation by works, by obedience to the commandment. If you've not had trouble with this problem, a problem with this verse before, let's see if I can create a problem for you with it. The, the statement, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life would indicate then that our having access to the tree of life and entering into the gates of the city is dependent upon our doing the commandments. But we find that contradictory to the entire concept of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the problem that we're dealing with is... uh, a textual problem in the Greek manuscripts. When the King James translation was translated in the year 1611, that's the year it was finished, 1611, the translators used a group of Greek manuscripts that were available to them that the various scholars had access to. As a matter of fact, when the translation was done, they they divided the uh, translators into three teams and placed them in three universities in England where they had access to the libraries and to uh, the manuscripts. And uh, uh, as they worked through with those manuscripts, they agreed to uh, use a group of manuscripts, and I say a group of manuscripts because up till that time it had not all been put together. You had different uh, separate books, separate letters uh, uh, that were uh, had been accumulated, and um, they had not yet uh, then really formulated uh, a lot of evaluation concerning different manuscripts because the manuscripts were all copied by hand. They didn't have any dictation machines. They didn't have any uh, type of mechanical uh, printing at that time uh, when when this first began to be developed. And uh, so there were manuscripts that were circulated all around. A man by the name of Erasmus, a Greek scholar, had very quickly assembled these manuscripts, a group of manuscripts, and published them. It became known as Textus Receptus, text that was received by all. He said later he got in too big a rush because there was a he was in competition with another Greek scholar to see who could publish the entire text in one form uh, the first. And he said there were other manuscripts that he should have considered and evaluated. Since that time, of course, uh, we have seen the accumulation of other manuscripts. Uh, Those manuscripts that uh, Erasmus used were uh, to form Textus Receptus were a group of manuscripts that were copied 
from the 10th to the 14th century. So for nine centuries before, there had been hand-copied of these manuscripts, and they had gone from place to place where Christianity uh, was taking root and were being able to be used. Uh, They were the best manuscripts that were readily available at that time. Today we have over 5,000 manuscripts. They go back to the first century, not the 10th century copies. They were copied by hand, but to the first century and the second century. We're able then to compare those and to evaluate them. It is only by the miracle power of God that there is such uniformity in the manuscripts from the 1st century to the 14th century. The uniformity is astounding. It can only be attributed to God's protection of His Word as He revealed it to mankind. But there are some minor areas of discrepancy. Those areas of discrepancy are readily identified as we compare manuscript with manuscript. Some were copyist errors. You may remember, I have, I have shared with some of you before, that in the original manuscripts of the New Testament, there it was all written in capital letters. All the words were in capital letters, and there is no spacing between the words. Just a row of letters and a row of letters and a row of letters. But the exactness of the Koine Greek grammar is of such a nature that you can see where the break of the sentence comes. And the structure of that is identified by the grammatical structure of Koine Greek most exact language that's ever been developed. And remember, it was developed by a man by the name of Alexander the Great. The first book that was written in Koine Greek, no, not the Bible, it was a military handbook. And uh, Alexander made his troops learn his language because he took the five dialects of Greek and formed one new Koine or common Greek out of them all. He made them learn his language and then he made them memorize the handbook. So he didn't want any misunderstanding. Well, neither does God want any misunderstanding. And so he has given us an exact language and if we use it correctly and follow the grammar, then we are able to know exactly what God said in a particular place. Here, there is a manuscript discrepancy where we have the statement that he says, Blessed are they that do his commandments. That word commandments is a note on the margin that some scholar wrote in that was later grafted into the text. If you have handwritten notes and you make uh, text and you make your notes handwritten, then 
unless you use a different color ink or a different color style or whatever, you're going to have some problem of confusion. And there is some of that as we've done textual criticism uh, in the past. But this does not say, blessed are they that do his commandments. I've given you the literal reading of that on page 6 in your study guide. It says, blessed are the ones washing the robes of them in order that the authority of them will be over the tree, the one of life, and by the gates that they may enter into the city. We are not saved by obeying commandments. We are saved by washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb, by receiving Jesus Christ as personal Savior. And the Scripture identifies that as tantamount to washing our robes and putting on His righteousness instead of our righteousness. So, note then that it's not by obedience to commandments, but rather it is through the washing of our robes in the blood of the Lamb in order that we might have authority and which will be over the tree of life. There's more emphasis then concerning the tree of life that we one of these days are going to need, hopefully sooner, not later, uh, that we will uh, investigate because there's some interesting things said here about the authority of, of them over the tree of life and by the gates of them that enter into the city. In verse 15 he said, for without, that is outside, or sorcerers, or dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Wherever we are, there's always a need to warn the unbelieving of the gravity of their sin and a word of caution concerning their condition. And so these are included in the same company as the ones that are designated in chapter 21, verse 8, which are consigned to the lake of fire and brimstone forever and ever. In verse 16 then, John writes that which he hears, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So we're given a reminder that the message of the book is for the church age believers. And yet, it's been neglected very seriously, the very message that it contains. The term the root connects Christ then with Israel as the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star, links him to the church. The Old Testament ends with Christ being identified as the Son of Righteousness. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, to arise with healing in his wings in a millennial blessing that's going to occur. 
The New Testament, on the other hand, closes with Christ as the bright and morning star, and He will come for His saints before He comes to reign with them. He will come to bring them to His Father's house and unite them with Himself and identified as the morning star. He will appear then before the sun, before the tribulation, He will come and take us away. In verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. That's the invitation today. That's the availability of God's grace to be transferred to our lives today. And both the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Holy Spirit and the church say, Come. Come and let him that heareth say, Come. And let any that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Three invitations in this text. The Bible will not close without providing an opportunity for the unsaved to place their trust in the Savior. The first two invitations are for the coming of the Lord, for the rapture of the church. Although they may be interpreted as a call from the Spirit and the church to the unsaved, it is that core of invitation that is available until the church age is done. The third invitation is clearly for those that are sinners to come and partake of the life of Christ. Let him that is a thirst come, whosoever will let him come and take of the water of life freely. And then we have some warnings against tampering with this prophecy. Verse 18 begins, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. Creates a little fear about handling this book of Revelation to add to or to take away. I do want to make the correction, the statement, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. It is not the book of life in the Greek manuscript. It is the tree of life. Is there a difference? Yes. The tree of life, remember, stands in the paradise of God. In Genesis, the tree of life stands in the paradise of God in Revelation. And there is that relationship that we have. And so it is important for us to understand what this tree of life signifies and relates to. And we will see that it refers to the role of the believer as a ruler in the holy city and over the new earth, that that's going to play out. Remember when we looked at it briefly earlier this morning, it 
we touched on the idea, the authority over the tree of life. And so we are talking about part of the reward, part of the a role that we are going to play in not only the millennial kingdom, but in the eternal kingdom. And uh, we lose that role if we modify what this book says and what God has revealed. And so in verse 20, he says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Even so come, Lord Jesus. One more comment about that behold I come quickly statement. Remember the timing and the position of this statement. It is at the end of the millennial reign. It is the establishment of of the uh, end at the end of the millennial reign that all of these things are going to be consummated. And so we are given details for the last seven years before the millennial reign begins about the return of Christ. And we are given a guideline as to the timing of that in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Remember chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. We went through there just in a cursory summary of it and identified seven specific periods of time during the church age from 30 A.D. to 150 A.D. From 150 A.D. the break came and we followed that through and we are now in the Laodicean period of the church age which began around uh, uh, 1950, 1945, 1950. We moved into the description that is identified on the, as the late, uh, the Laodicean church period. And we are in that period. It is in this period that Christ comes. We don't know how long we've been in this period since roughly 1945, 1950, as we evaluate that by the circumstances uh, that are identified in the church. And so quickly, the Lord is going to come as these things are fulfilled. And then we have that statement, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The word amen means let it be so and let the saying of it be charged to my account. I'm in such agreement with that, I take the responsibility for saying that. So, the book closes. All prophecy closes. Anything that we know of God, there is no revelation after this. And so it has to come before this closing in the 22nd chapter. And we are able then to see historically how much of that fit in in the past. The current events of our day herald the trumpet call, Jesus must be coming soon. There's little that would withstand the judgment that God is going to bring upon this earth that has not already been fulfilled in our history 
as we are able to trace it and compare it to the Word of God. So having considered the prophecy concerning end times, we spent time in our study concerning the events that are revealed in the Bible about the church, its mission, as well as its failure. We saw a stage then being erected in heaven and discovered that that stage is being prepared for the rapture of the church and the marriage of the bride to the bridegroom. And then from chapter 6 through this point, we have seen the revelation of that which is going to come following the rapture of the church, that which is going to take place here upon the earth. So we focused our attention on the stage here on the earth, which is being readied for the events that are going to occur that will bring about the second advent of Christ. We examined the events of the seven years of tribulation, and I realize and acknowledge a very quick overview of chapter 6 then through chapter 19. And then we took a brief look at the millennial reign of Christ, briefly looking at a thousand year reign of Christ concerning that prophecy. And then we saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth are going to, at that point, be passed away. And so we have a new heaven and a new earth. And now we have seen the finality as that's going to be structured and we're going to move into eternity. Current events indicate the fulfillment of these revelations that we have pursued is very near and our objective in knowing them is to accomplish two things. To motivate us as sojourners so that we will properly represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to a dying world and secondly, to provide a sense of peace. God is ultimately in control of the outcome and we can be at peace. So join us next time. We're going to draw all these things together in an applicational investigation of the specifics that God has revealed that we are to be doing while these events are playing out. As we see the day approaching, what we are to be doing individually and collectively as a group. But of course it all begins at salvation. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, but with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your marvelous grace that makes us acceptable on the basis of who and what Jesus Christ is and gives us the confident expectation 
of an eternity with you. Help us be motivated by that, Father, to service until that day comes. For we give you honor and praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.